all longing for wisdom, aren't we? Of how to live the life that God has for us. How we thrive in all that he has called us to. And how we survive and thrive in this crazy but beautiful city called Los Angeles. We're all looking for wisdom. We're all looking for some kind of tip of this is what you do. We're all busy or tired or over-visioned or struggling to know how do we make the most out of the life that God's created for us. I don't know about you, but I grew up reading books, self-help books, uh, on how to actually make the most out of life. And I read them because my dad would give them to me at a young age, you know, things like Seven Habits of Highly Effective uh, People. When, you know, it's great when you get that when you're three years old, right, for a Christmas present. Seven Habits of Highly Effective Toddlers, it should have been called. And, but I grew up reading these books, things like how to, win and, uh, uh, how to Win Friends and Influence People. And whether it be today, if you got into the bookshops and I have those bookshops that are left and I browse the shelves and I pick up a couple of books and I read them. They're slightly different titles. They're less polite titles nowadays to the self-help books, but things like How to Be a Badass. Have you read that? It's a bestseller. Or um, How to Master Your Monkey Mind is the latest one. Obviously, life-changing magic of tidying up. If, we, if, you just, if you tidy up, you'll be fine, you know? And then the best sell right now is the art of not giving a beep, you know? And you see that everywhere. But we're longing for wisdom. We're longing for someone to help us live into all our dreams and all the ambitions and all of our walk with God. I remember meeting someone about five years ago who just arrived in L.A., and he was struggling to fit in. He was struggling. It's lonely. It's anxious. I'm not too sure how to cope here. So I prayed with him and said, you know, just prayed over him and prayed that the Spirit would come and guide him and be with him and help him. And I remember meeting him about four or five months later. I went, oh, how's it going? You know, what's going on? He went, yeah, I found the answer. I'm doing really well. I found the answer to living well in LA and really succeeding. I said, wow, tell me. What is it? And he said, it's this. It's just this one thing. He says this. To survive and thrive in LA is to look out for number one and don't care about anyone else. I thought, oh, so my prayers works or badly. I couldn't believe it. But that not that the temptation? We're looking in this crazy but beautiful city of ours in the hustle and bustle of how to thrive. Even though I walk with the Lord, how do we thrive in that area? Well, we're in a sermon series called God's Wisdom for LA Life, looking at the book of Proverbs, where God shares his wisdom. He writes his bestseller on how to live life to the full, how to actually survive and thrive in your walk with him and in all the things that he has for you and for me. And in Proverbs 22, he gives us the one thing that he says is the foundation for success in your life that everything else flows out of this. And this thing is found in Proverbs 22 verse 4, where he says, humility is the fear of the Lord, and its wages are riches, honor, and life. The one thing God says, this is the foundation, the fuel, the source of all the success and well-being and the fruitfulness that you have in life, the one thing all comes down to this, humility. Humility. I don't know about you, but for years, I was really underwhelmed by that kind of advice. Humility. Humility for me was like one of those virtues you're told you need, but you try and avoid it at all costs. Because humility for me felt like 
that it would curb the ambitions, the dreams that I had in my life. It was kind of like to let other people succeed, but you hold yourself back. And so I always had this fight inwardly with humility. And yet in Proverbs, it says humility is wages, are riches, honor, and life. That actually I must have had it wrong of what God is meaning by humility. And so this morning, we're looking at three things. The definition of humility, the power of humility, and how we grow this thing called humility. The definition, the power, and the way to humility. The first point is this, the definition of humility. Mother Teresa calls humility the mother of all virtues. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, said, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. So what is humility, the power of humility? Well, let's look again at Proverbs 22. It tells us right in this verse. In 22.4, it says, humility is the fear of the Lord. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Now, we've seen so far in the book of Proverbs that when the author says fear, it doesn't mean to be afraid of. It doesn't mean to run away from. It means what are you living your life subject to? It means who do you recognize as the great authority in life? Who do you recognize as the narrative in life that you step into and define the rest of your life by it? In other words, humility is to see yourself through the lens of how God sees you. Humility is to step into the identity and to live out of that identity of who God says you are. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, gospel humility is not thinking less of yourself or thinking more of yourself, but thinking of myself less. See, humility is stepping into who God says you are and living out of that. Let's break that down as C.S. Lewis does. He says, firstly, humility is knowing who God says you are, not thinking less of yourself, but stepping rightly into who God says you are. In England, you grow up denying who you are. You have this sense of self-deprecation. I can never say anything positive about myself because that would be uh, prideful. That wouldn't be humility. But of course, that is not gospel humility. Gospel humility is in the fear of the Lord. It's to come under the authority of God, your creator, and say, God, in humility, you tell me who I am. You tell me. I don't want to dishonor who you've made me to be. I want to think rightly about who I am. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking rightly of yourself through the lens of your Creator. And see, when you look at it that way, you step into the Bible and say, God, show me who I am. And it gives you an astonishing picture. See, humility causes you to accept what God says about you, which is you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a child of God. You are a masterpiece. Literally, in Ephesians, you're called a masterpiece of art. You've been chosen to be born at this time and to be brought to this place because you have a unique gifting and a unique uh, um, cocktail of experiences and personality and gifts that you could make a contribution to this city. That you have a calling and a destiny. 
That in Christ you've been forgiven and cleansed of your past. And now you're filled with his powerful Holy Spirit. You've got a God who says, I'm your father and I believe in you. I'm cheering you on. I'm rooting for you. And every time you fail, I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to brush you down so that we can move on together. And in fact, anything that seems to hold you back, my son has dealt with it on the cross. So nothing now is in your way to fulfill all that I've called you to do and to be. See, gospel humility causes you to step aside of what other people say about you, what your mistakes from the past may define about you. And all of these things are pushed to the side in humility to say, I'm not defining myself based on that but I'm defining myself based on what my father says about me. So much of us, and certainly in my life, we define our identity not based on the fear of the Lord, but the fear of other people's opinions. The fear of what culture says is significant. The the fear of being insignificant if I don't do this or that. The fear of my past mistakes, letting them define me and say that this is the only thing that I'm good for. The humility is to step into the confidence of who God says you are. And the great thing about this, this isn't just positive thinking. One of the great um, bestsellers right now is the power of positive thinking. But it says, project out there who you want to be and just believe it. The problem is you could be really deluded about who you are. This isn't calling us to delusion. It's calling us to reality because God says, this is who you are. You're not saying it to yourself. And if I say it three times, I should believe it. But actually, you're listening to an external authority, your creator, telling you, even if you don't believe it, this is who you are. I love that God, your father, wants to start you out in life with such a strong affirmation of the beauty of who you are. I love it in... um, The Gospels, we see Jesus start his ministry with these incredible affirming words of his father saying, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. I I, I think when we see our father face to face, he may go, that's such a terrible translation. It sounds so British. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. It's so Downton Abbey. I think it probably is. You're my boy. I'm so proud of you. That is the reality of who you are. True humility is accepting, God, this is who you say I am. And even if voices inside me say I'm less, even if culture says I'm less, even if my parents say I'm less, even if my past boyfriend said I'm less, even if my review at work said I'm less, I know that I'm not because this is who you say I am. This is the power of humility. See, we love to step into who God says we are because it transforms how we then live out our life. Humility becomes an explosive power for you to step into all that God has for you. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. We see that he's so living into the reality of who he is that he has this amazing confidence that every time he writes a letter, have you noticed this? He begins his letters this way, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You know, in England, it's like, who do you think you are? But no, he knew. He knew this is who I am. And this is who I am. Therefore, I know he had this incredible ambition to live into the calling of what he had. And off he goes, planting churches across all of Europe and Asia at the time. 
The power of humility gave him confidence. The power of humility gave him ambition. The power of humility then gave him amazing endurance because no matter when he was tortured, when he was whipped, he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he said, Christ's love compels me. This is who he's called me to be. And nothing's going to get in my way. The power of humility is the engine of your destiny. I remember... For years, I never embraced who God had created me to be. I was not living in fear of the Lord. I was living in fear of what other people wanted me to be or what I thought was significant. And so I would define my, what I studied at school, what job I did, kind of what I wore, all these things. It was defined by not the fear of the Lord, but the fear of others. And it didn't bring confidence. It bred massive insecurity. It didn't bring an ambition. It actually shrunk my heart to try and protect myself. And I remember going through a huge crisis in my mid-20s. And I knelt down on the floor and said, that's it and done. I can't worship what other people think anymore. I've got to worship King Jesus and what he says about me. I've got to go on a journey to discover this is who I am. Whether people like it or not. Whether it's significant or not in the eyes of the world, I must embrace who God has called me to be. And I remember doing lots of workbooks and lots of talking to friends about who I am. And I remember doing the Myers-Briggs test. Have you ever done the Myers-Briggs test? I remember doing that and thinking, oh great, I'm going to discover really who I am at the core. And I came out with this profile, these four letters. And I, I was so disappointed <laughs> because I came out with ENTJ. Any other ENTJs in the room? Yeah, we are the lowest popular uh, you know, group of all the Myers-Briggs personalities. And I remember coming out with it, and someone said to me, oh, you're ENTJ. <laughs> no one likes ENTJs. And they even sent me an article, why no one likes ENTJs. But I felt, it's Lord, I've been living for others' approval, and now my Myers-Briggs is the least popular of all the Myers-Briggs profiles, but this is who you've made me to be. I'm going to live for you. I remember uh, then going to seminary in Canada. Lizzie and I and the kids, we moved there, and it was a fantastic time. But at the end of seminary, I went to, a, we all had an interview, like a careers counseling interview, what's next? And we had to fill in this big survey beforehand. And the person who was doing the counseling with me was a pastor, and he had the results, and I walked in. And within a couple of minutes, he just said to me, look, uh, I've looked at your profile. I've looked at who you are, and you should not be a pastor. I went, what? Just gave up my law, my law career, moved my family across the world. And he went, you shouldn't be a pastor. Um, and then he looked at me and went, actually, well, let's say this. You shouldn't be a pastor in Canada. <laughs> well, this is getting worse. We were trying to stay in Canada. He said, look, yeah, you don't like the status quo. You're an agitator. Your profile means that you'll always be pushing for more, that actually you've got this high vision, high dreams, and pastoral work is all about just loving people where they're at, not pushing, not having big dreams, and just loving people, and they're going to hate you, and you'll hate people. I was thinking, holy smokes. I went, Lord, have I misheard you? And then actually, he said one thing. I don't think it was a compliment, but it did help me because I was leaving the room. And he said, well, actually, again, before you go, I need to reframe what I said. I don't think you should be a pastor in Canada, but maybe America. I went, what does that mean? And so anyway, here I am in America. And, and 
But it was stepping into, God, this is who you've called me to be. And the great confidence and the great joy and the great peace of not trying to be something else. God has called you uniquely. You're not more special than anyone else, but you are unique. And you are to discern in humility, this is who I am. That means some things you're going to go, oh, I never realized I was that. Thank you, Lord. And some ways you're going to go, Lord, but I so wished I was that, but I'm not. And in humility, accepting that. And then stepping into the freedom of being yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking rightly of yourself in the fear of the Lord. Secondly, gospel humility doesn't just say who you are, but gospel humility says who you're not. Who you're not. As C.S. Lewis puts it, gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself. Proverbs 22, verse 4, humility is the fear of the Lord. And its wages are life and riches and honor. You see, gospel humility says, I'm not going to think less of myself, but equally, I'm going to hear what God says about me, so I never think more of myself. And let's be very honest. When you open the Bible or when you come to God in relationship with Him, you hear a lot about what you're not good at. You hear a lot about what you're not. And humility is marrying together the passionate conviction of who you are with the acceptance and the joyful acceptance of this is what I'm not. The first thing the gospel tells us is that you are not independent. That no man is an island. You are not independent. You are utterly dependent upon Jesus Christ. You can't just go, thanks Jesus, leave it with me, I'm off. And then when you achieve something, you're full of pride. Look what I did in my own strength. Jesus says in John 15, remain in me and I in you. And if you don't remain in me, you won't bear fruit. And in fact, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. See, humility drives us to our knees in prayer, in dependence, in fill me with your spirit. And humility means that whatever successes you have, you go, oh, glory to Jesus, because without him, I could do nothing. This is the power of humility. Gospel humility doesn't just say that you're not independent, but also you're not an individual. You are not an individual. You are not a lone ranger. You need others. Paul puts it like this, you are one member of a body. And you can't say, if you're the thumb, you can't say to the eye, I don't need you. You can't say to the foot, I don't need you. But we need each other. So humility, when you recognize what I am not, I'm not the whole body. I'm not God's gift to LA. I'm one member of the body and I need others. It means humility drives you to surround yourself with others who complement your weaknesses. It drives you to have people around you that you can collaborate and go, I don't have all the answers. I need other people to help. It means you, you're driven to having diversity around you. Because it's like, I can't have everyone like me in my life. Because if I'm a thumb, the body doesn't function if we're all thumbs. We need something else. It means that you can admit to not being something you're not with joy. Because it doesn't undermine your shame. A thumb doesn't look at itself and go, oh, I'm so ashamed I'm a thumb. I'm not a finger. No, I'm going to delight in being a thumb. But I need fingers. I need feet. 
for many years, I felt the definition of being a man was to be self-sufficient, was to not need anyone, to be the one person in the room who wasn't needy. Such pride. I would even minister out of that context, prayer ministry, preaching, counseling, and yet when it came to care, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good, man. Praising the Lord. Hey, man, I'm fine. All the time thinking that I can't show weakness because if I showed weakness, I'm no longer a man of God. It's pride. And it leads to your downfall because I saw my world getting shrinker and shrinker, uh, smaller and smaller, shrinking and shrinking. I, I actually saw my energy depleting. And all of a sudden, I was so exhausted because I was trying to be a lone ranger. I was trying to be self-sufficient. And I finally had good friends around me to say, yeah, you can't do this by yourself. And so now I boast in my weaknesses. I boast that I'm not this or that. I'm an ENTJ, but I'm not anything else. So if you come to me and say, but what about this guy? I go, that's why we have ash. You know? I need people like ash around me. I need that God gave me a wife that we could compliment each other. Because we can boast now and not be ashamed that we're not this or that. Humility has the power for confidence and the power to bring a team around you. And thirdly, the gospel says you're not infallible. You're not infallible. In fact, the gospel says you're deeply flawed. You're deeply flawed, you're deeply imperfect, and in your best moments, you have much to grow in. See, the gospel doesn't say God was so impressed with you that he saved you. The gospel says you are so broken, he had to come and die for you. Tim Keller says this, The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I've got nothing to prove. See, humility drives us to readily accept, man, I am flawed, I'm going to make mistakes. Humility te- gives us a teachable heart because we never thought we were perfect in the first place. In fact, I'm here by grace. I'm, God put me in this role. God put me in this city. God put me in this family knowing I'm going to mess up. So when I mess up, I don't have to be ashamed by that as if I've done something God wasn't expecting. All he's saying is, Gay, I called you by grace. You are flawed. And therefore, humility drives you to being teachable. It drives you to asking for forgiveness. It drives you to say sorry It drives you to hear critical and feedback and go, yeah, you know what? You're absolutely right. Because I'm a work in progress. Mother Teresa said, humility is the mother of all virtues because if you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace because you know who you are. If you are blamed, you won't be discouraged. But if they call you a saint, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. Humility causes us to be quick to say sorry. I never pretended I was perfect in the first place. 
and quick to forgive because we are in need of much forgiveness. I remember asking one very prominent denominational leader of a global denomination. I said, in a meeting, and I had the privilege of raising my hand and asking, asking him a question. I said, how on earth do you cope with so much criticism? How on earth do you get up every day knowing that on social media and in the press, you're being attacked on every side? I asked that question because I was struggling with criticism. I thought, if I'm struggling, how on earth do you cope? And he looked at me and said, well, I never thought I wouldn't make huge mistakes. In fact, I know I'm going to make huge mistakes because God called me by grace, not because I'm perfect. And in fact, I sometimes ask God, God, you knew I'd make stupid mistakes and yet you still chose me. So it's kind of your fault that this is all happening. He said, I'm totally fallible. I'm totally sinful. Sin has been dethroned in my heart. Jesus has now replaced the sin as the king of my life. But sin roams around and I'm tempted to do all sorts of stuff. I'm really prone to delusion and greed and lust. I'm, I'm prone to all of this. But God knew that. But by grace, he called me. By grace, he grows me through these mistakes. And by grace, he cares for and grows other people who I hurt through my mistakes. Humility means that we not only embrace who God called us, but also embrace who he says we're not. And we can put together this confident humility that's quick to forgive and quick to receive feedback. Thirdly, gospel humility is not just thinking not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person, he will be what most people call humble. He won't be some sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you felt a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Doesn't that sound amazing? The joy of self-forgetfulness. The joy of self-forgetfulness. The joy that when you walk into a party, you're not petrified about what people will think of you. You're not worried about what to wear to impress. You're not worried about whether you look thin or fat. You're not worried about where you are in the pecking order of people in the room. You're not worried about who to network with to advance your own career. You're not worried about, oh, should I just leave because I don't fit in? It's the joy of self-forgetfulness, the power of of self-forgetfulness because you no longer live inwardly into your insecurities but outwardly to love and bless others around you. Humility is the fear of the Lord. And when you step into your relationship with the Lord, when you let your life be defined by the Lord, you discover that in Jesus Christ, He fills the vacuum in your heart that nothing else can fill. 
It was Billy Graham who said, there's a God-shaped hole, vacuum in every human heart that can only be filled by Jesus. And have you noticed, if Jesus isn't filling your heart, then you try and shove it with other things, but it never satisfies. In fact, it creates a vacuum that you walk into a room and all you can do is think about yourself. Your fears, your insecurities, your opportunities. What funny thing you should say or what funny thing you should have said to impress. There's a hole in the human heart that can only be filled by Jesus. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will fill that hole in your heart. Humility is the fear of the Lord because it's coming under him and saying, I'm not going to shove other things into this hole in my heart. I'm going to actually invite Jesus to fill it so that the vacuum disappears and I can finally step into being the person you've called to me, which is other-centered and not self-centered. It's only once this vacuum is filled that we can start to go into a room, go into our communities, go into our school, go into our work, and not be obsessed about making much of us, but laying down ourselves for the sake of others. You see, Jesus defines your life not in self-centered way. He says, you are salt and light. You are to be a blessing to others. Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. His last words were, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, other, 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 mission, mission, mission. Get out of yourself and bless this world around you. Isn't that what this city needs? People who are obsessed with blessing others in this city. But we know that humility says the only way that's going to happen is if we allow him to fill the vacuum in our hearts. That we allow him to bring his presence and his love, his affirmation, his approval, his forgiveness, his freedom to fill our hearts that we might be so filled to overflowing. In England, when you go to a pub and you go up to the bar and you get a pint of beer, they they fill it right to the top. And so you're walking back, like, gently. You don't want to spill it, right? You're walking back. You're walking back. And inevitably, in a pub, someone knocks you, right? Someone knocks you. And what happens when you get knocked? You spill. You spill over this liquid gold. And you spill it, right? But here's the thing. It's a great image of Christians because we are to be so filled with the presence of Jesus that when L.A. inevitably knocks you, Criticism comes. Rejection comes. Circumstances don't work out as, they, as you thought. And you get knocked. What do you spill over? You spill over the love and the grace and the presence of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. Do not be drunk with the Spirit, but be filled. That you are people that in humility you forget about yourself. Because you're so full, when you're knocked, you drench everybody with the love of Jesus. This is humility. So as the worship team comes up, I wanted to give you three simple practices that we practice every day to cultivate humility. So we cultivate humility. I want to invite you to three practices this week. Gratitude, confession, and worship. See, gratitude says, God, I receive and I'm thankful for who you made me to be. I'm not trying to be someone else. And I'm not, going to be, I'm not going to think lesser of myself. I'm going to be grateful for who you called me to be. 
And some people, I just want to felt a word that some people have always thought significance was found in being a thumb. But you have to admit you're not a thumb. And you've got to go before the Lord in fear of the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for devaluing who you've made me to be. Because until you value who God called you to be, you will never live into it. In God's sovereignty and his wisdom, he called you and created you to be you. And joy comes in embracing it. Secondly, confession. Confession says, oh Lord, I can't think more of myself than you think of me. I make mistakes all the time. And I don't have to say that in a shameful way because my heart is filled with your love. But in an honest way, I make mistakes all the time and therefore that just means, Lord, I so need you. I so need people around me. Lord, help me just confess to you and confess to others my mistakes. Because I need forgiveness and I need other people. Practice confession. Most of us practice avoid confession because we think it brings shame upon us. But that issue's been dealt with. You are loved. You are accepted. You're a child of God. And it's okay to say, but I mess up. I'm sorry. And then finally, worship. And what we're going to do now is worship. Because in worship, we say, God, fill me with, fill this vacuum in my heart with your love and your presence. I don't know about you, I'm a leaky bucket. My heart is filled one day, and the next day, it's almost empty. But if I'm going to overflow to the city, daily I need to be filled. So let's stand, and let's worship together.